Hello, I'm Joel Porter, and I'd like to welcome you to the February edition of Motivational Interviewing on Beyond. Uh, this was a really special month uh, because we welcomed our dear friend Kendall Bond um, onto the Motivational Interviewing and Beyond team. And so this month we we had a question about using motivational interviewing with more than one person. And so in order to answer that question, we, um, we invited Karen Ingersoll and Chris Wagner, who have um, written a book on motivational interviewing in groups, focused on group counseling, and Tyrell Sparks in uh, New York City, who's a clinical psychologist and his research is in working with couples. And he utilizes motivational interviewing in his approach. Um, we wandered into sports teams and classrooms and families, and there was a, a lively discussion um, in the chat. Loads of wonderful comments and questions. Um, so we hope you enjoy uh, this podcast, and we'll see you next month. All right, I think we got a. I think we got a good number. Y'all want to go ahead and get going? Sure. Everybody ready? Let's do it. Okay. Um, kia ora, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Um, uh, welcome to the 2023 Motivational Interviewing and Beyond. Um, this is a pretty exciting, uh, pretty exciting um, episode we're going to have here for a couple of reasons. Uh, but I'll, I'll start off by introducing myself. I'm, I'm Joel Porter. Um, I'm in Christchurch, New Zealand. It's um, 8.05 in the morning here, and um absolutely delighted to be here with this cast of uh, friends and colleagues. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really excited because we, we, have a new, we have a new member of our team, and that's Kendall Bond, and she'll introduce herself, and just delighted that she accepted our invitation to come. And I don't know what we do, Steve. We co-host. We, we do something. Um, facilitate or something, but I'm glad that Kendall's with us, and she's a friend of mine and Steve's, and I guess everybody here for a long time. But welcome, Kendall. Um, I look forward to everything that you're going to bring to this webinar that we do, um, and the magic and your ideas and your thoughts are going to be fun and entertaining and informative. So that's me, um, and we'll get going. Um, I don't think there's really any housekeeping to do, but other than, you know, um, enter your thoughts and ideas into the chat. Um, and if if you're working with families or you're working with groups of people and using motivational interviewing, please let us know, particularly if you'd like to come and join the conversation. Um, so how about I pass it over to you, Kendall? Well, thank you. And I just want to say thank you to Joel and Steve for inviting me to be part of the team and Angela as well. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really honoured to be here. Um, so if I, I'm a behavioural psychologist and I live in Brighton in the UK and I work with a variety of different people. So I work with groups and couples and also individuals. And I do a lot of training and supervision and consultancy as well, depending on where we are. And I just, I've been doing MI for goodness, many years, for 18 years. And I love it. And I'm still learning about it every single day. So um, it's an absolute delight to be here. And yeah, I've just had my dinner and a glass of wine. So I'm very happy. Cool. All Thank right. you. 
All right, and you want to introduce yourself. Sure. Hello, everyone. My name is Ange. I'm based in Cardiff in Wales. Um, I, my history is I met, used to work with Professional Rolnick, Steve, back, I think, about 15 years ago um, until Steve retired from Cardiff University. And my specialism is in research comms and, and research management. But here, this is fun for me. I'm tech support, so I'm here to support the panellists. I'm here to support you, the attendees. So if you've got any comments, any questions you would like me to make a note of, um, I'll be just in the background to keep an eye on, an eye on things. Thank you. Um, Chris. Hey everybody, Chris Wagner. I live in Richmond, Virginia. Been here longer than Kendall's been doing MI and <laughs> how it goes. I'm a clinical psychologist by training. I work at a university and do practice and a little bit of research. Nice to meet y'all. See you all. Tyrell. Hi, everyone. <clears throat> I'm Tyrell Starks. Uh, I'm also a clinical psychologist, uh, and I work at Hunter College, City University of New York. Um, and I have primarily been working in a research context I've had um, for the for the last 10 or 12 years have really been focused on developing applications of motivational interviewing for couples. And so I've had a series of studies where we've been trying to, to sort out that technique and, and how to apply it. And Karen. Hi, everybody. I'm Karen Ingersoll. I'm also in Virginia, but about 90 miles away from where Chris is uh, near the Blue Ridge Mountains. I'm actually sitting here looking at a mountain right outside my office window. Um, so I feel very luck lucky today. We have a beautiful blue sky day. Um, I'm also a clinical psychologist just to heap on <laughs> uh, by training. Um, I'm a professor at the University of Virginia and um, I work mostly with people with medical conditions as well as mental health and substance use issues uh, in either an HIV context or in the context of uh, women's drinking that might affect uh, a pregnancy. Uh, those are sort of my, my research loves. Um, and for many years now, uh, Chris and I have been working together on concepts around motivational interviewing groups uh, because as we started training motivational reviewing many decades ago around the Commonwealth of Virginia, one of the first questions people would ask is, yes, but could you do it in groups? And so in order to answer that question, we had to work that out. And um, we continue to work that out. Cool. And last but not least, of course, Steve. Um, can you say hello and introduce yourself as you get your stove fixed? Talking about me. I'm talking about you, brother. Oh, thanks very much. Um, I've escaped the world of of cleverness and work, and I've I've gone feral, and I'm up in a, a hut in the deepest, darkest West Wales. Um, but I've got a wonderful uh, solar panel on the roof, so I can connect with you. And I am truly. Uh, astonished how widespread is the need for constructive conversations in group settings. I'm working mostly in sport, and I cannot tell you how much of a 
struggle it is for coaches and other people um, to manage groups. And in the absence of skillfulness, uh, they recede into patterns that are far worse than anything I've seen in criminal justice or healthcare. Um, so anything we can come up with that is constructive and um, simple, not too jargonized, would be incredibly helpful. So thanks very much. All right. Um, we didn't intentionally stack the deck with psychologists. It's just that this is the way it ended up. And, you know, more than like six or seven psychologists make me kind of nervous. So I'm glad we hadn't hit that level yet. Um, so what I'd like to do is I'd like to just jump in. I mean, I don't have a lot of preference in other, other than, you know, I've, you know, I've done work with, I've, I've been, with Karen and Chris and trained with Chris and doing MI in groups. And, and I've run those workshops and I've run groups with, uh, with utilizing their model, which we're going to hear more about as we get going. Um, but I remember, I forget, I forgot where I met you, Tyrell. It was at one of the, one of our mint conferences where you were presenting some of your initial work that you had done with um, motivational interviewing with same sex couples. Um, Maybe it might have been Berlin or somewhere. But anyway, what I wanted to do is I wanted to, because I want to know more about what you've learned over the years. I want to kind of open up with you talking about kind of working with couples, why motivational interviewing and how you have woven that into couples counseling and what you found, of course. Um. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for letting me start. I think I think it might have been New Orleans actually where we where we had that conversation. Um, but thanks for letting me start. This is this is an amazing group, so I'm I'm happy to to lead us off. Um, so what have I learned? I so I jumped into my career at sort of an interesting moment. Um, it was it was 2009, and this paper had just been published that suggested that as many as two thirds of new HIV infections were being transmitted between uh, between men who were in established relationships. And it was there was all of a sudden this sort of paradigm shift in HIV prevention where people started thinking about relationships, and it seemed really logical that motivational interviewing had had such a place at the table. Uh, in terms of developing substance use and then related HIV prevention interventions, it seems it seems crazy to not think about some way that motivational interviewing could be part of that. Um, but it also became pretty clear that there had been some challenges anytime motivational interviewing had been tried with couples. And I think what what I have spent the last, 10 years thinking about is how to meet that essential challenge. And one, one way to understand the challenge is what do you do when the two people in a relationship don't feel the same about change? One person thinks drinking is just fine and the other one thinks they should, should, should dial it down. Um, one person wants to be monogamous and not have sex with other people. The other person wants some sort of open relationship. Um, one person thinks PrEP is a great way to prevent HIV. The other person thinks that it's, it's concerning and there are side effects. What do you do when the people in a relationship don't see change the same way? And for a while, I actually thought Karen and Chris were going to have my answer. 
because they had been figuring out how to make motivational interviewing work with groups. And the problem is, as great as their framework is, it's not quite the right framework for couples. And the reason is, in a group, we often assume that the group members are pretty independent of one another. And if one person in the group decides that, that they're going to move towards change and someone else doesn't, they have the ability outside of the group to enact change pretty independently. And the group leaders may even have some control over the group composition. But in a couple, whether we want to or not, we can't decide who's going to be in a relationship with who. And also couples, the partners in a relationship influence one another in all sorts of ways outside of the session. Um, and, and so we needed some framework for thinking about working with a couple that, that could accommodate those pieces that are really unique, that, a, that two people in a relationship, it's not just, it's not just a group comprised of two, two people. They actually operate quite, um, quite differently. Um, so we thought a lot in terms of interdependence theory to try to understand the way that people influence their relationship partners, the way that being partnered uh, changes the way we, we think about our health behavior. And, and I guess when I think about those elements of how partners influence behavior, I think about kind of an internal and an external route, right? So partners may do things to deliberately influence our behavior. They may remind us to take our meds. They may tell us that we've had a little too much to drink. So partners can do things directly to influence us. And then also relationships sort of get under the skin and become a part of our identity so that I begin to think of myself. If I were to tell you who I am, uh, part of my answer is I am somebody's husband. I am somebody's spouse. I am somebody's partner. That becomes a piece of me. And the more it becomes a piece of me, the more I am willing to think about my partner's needs and the good of my relationship when I am starting to make uh, decisions. And Steve, there may be some intersections here with your work with teams that the more being a member of a team becomes a part of my identity, the more I'm willing to think about it as I'm, as I'm considering the consequences of my behavior. So um, to stop rambling, the thing that we sort of, the thing that we, we settled on or that we realized is that when a couple feels differently about change, there's no right way, there's no great way to evoke change talk. Because if you just use tried and true individual MI skills and you're talking to two people who feel differently about a behavior, you're almost guaranteed that the utterances that would get you change talk from one of them will get you counter change talk from the other. And so the, the thing that we moved towards was, uh, was that first, we have to help the couple find consensus. First, we've got to look for common ground. And then once you can find common ground, then you can think about eliciting change talk. So there's, there's this, the, the idea of sort of dancing with a couple is this process of, of bringing us together, finding consensus, and then considering change. Um, 
And that, that is sort of, I think that idea of the balance between finding consensus and considering change is something that I now find myself thinking about much, much more than I, than I was uh, initially. I wonder if you could say more about the common ground. Just elaborate on that. So I have a, I guess there's a few ways um, that I could maybe say more about that. One is that, um, so in the same way that in an individual motivational interview, when one way to generate motivation for change is to get people to think about how their behavior impacts their broader goals and values. So to sort of dial out and think about um, how, how drinking might, might impact your values or, or about how the decisions you make around sex and sexual safety may, may intersect with your broader goals and values. When, when partners in a relationship disagree I often find myself inviting them to dial out and to think about their broader goals and values. Because even, even if two people want to handle sex with, with folks outside of their relationship differently, even if two people disagree about the best way to prevent HIV infection or how to, how to look after your health if you're living with HIV, even if two people disagree about what they want to do around drinking or substance use, there probably is at least some chance that they have some common ground somewhere, that, that ultimately they both agree that they want to stay HIV negative, even if they disagree about the exact best way to do that. Or they agree that they both want to stay healthy, even if they disagree about how much they need to take their HIV meds. Um, or they know that they need to take care of their finances. They may disagree about drinking's effect on that. But that, that sort of dialing out and looking for some common ground um, that we may need to find by getting these two people to think about what ties them together in, in, in the first place, right? What is, what is your relationship grounded in? What are the two of you trying to do together? And then to work backwards from those values that you both share, from those things where you do see eye to eye, to then get you to imagine or to consider the impact of your, your health behavior, whatever the target is, on those things that we know are common ground. Can I jump in? Um, oh, because you just unmuted, so go for it. No, no, I didn't unmute to talk. I just was saying, yay, thank you very much. That really helped me understand more. It's so interesting what Tyrell is talking about, and there's a lot of people commenting in the, in the chat as well. And one of the things that I'm fascinated by is about when we move from creating that connectivity and moving from otherness in relationships to connection, mm. and, and that being part of the engagement process before you can move into the evocation of a, ch a change towards a direction, not just in themselves, but in the relationship as well. And I'm, I just wondered if that's something that has to be considered too. 
So it does. And actually, when I talk about motivational interviewing with couples, I talk about an additional process that is unique to working with couples. Um, and it is what I call facilitating dyadic functioning, um, which basically is this idea that you just spend some time inviting these two folks to think about what works about this relationship, what they value about this relationship, what they respect about their partner. Um, I think it's, it's I, was, I was just training some folks in South Africa and I, I ended up saying quite a lot during that training that like in some ways we don't wanna to run too fast towards a problem. Um, if, if we run too quickly, to explore a problem. There's the danger that we get there without knowing what we have to work with. Uh, and so before, before I try to focus with a couple and to identify you know, exactly what the, the target behavior is and, and, and what, what sort of our goal here together is to do around it, before I focus, I think about spending some time merely having this couple tell me and by extension, letting them hear from one another what it is that they value about this relationship, because that's the stuff that's going to help get us through the hard pieces. Um, Karen and Chris, I imagine that there's probably some similarity there to sort of the, the, the formative process of sort of group cohesion. Well, yeah, you know, when the group is first forming, Part of what you're looking for is, you know, whereas you have in the couple, the story of their relationship, right, that they share together. In most groups, you've got a bunch of strangers coming together. And part of what you have to do is um, start to reflect on similar themes or ideas that maybe come up as group members go around and introduce themselves and talk about what they're, um, why are they there or uh, I think in better groups, you might start out with um, something similar to goals or values, you know, sort of higher order, not too personal, um, not too threatening to share in a group because you want to make sure it's going to be a safe experience for people. And only once group members start to get to know each other a bit and they're uh, connecting on some of these larger themes, then you start to look for or uh, allow more talk about the problems, right? Because most people are coming to a group or coming to couples therapy because there are problems. I'm not surprised by that. And it actually makes me sort of happy that these, these concepts of like cohesion formation or like seeking consensus before you think about eliciting change talk and like, cultivating cohesion before you end up exploring problems. I, I have I have sort of a growing hunch that those big picture processes are probably common to most applications of MI where you're trying to work simultaneously with more than one person. Yeah, because it has to be a safe experience, whether it's two people or 10 people. And, you know, starting off with the, the human common experiences that people have instead of immediately rushing to the problem, just like you were saying, Tyrell, with a couple, you want to, the group members don't necessarily have relationships with 
each other, you know, in a couple settings, they might, like if you were doing inpatient uh, psychiatry groups or something where all the, all the folks are there because they're having kind of severe psychiatric symptoms and they're, they're in a milieu together. But most of the time, that's not the case. Most of the time, there's really no relationship between folks and you're trying to form the safety net of some shared humor, some shared positive experiences, things they enjoy um, to get the ball rolling with conversation so that when people do have to bring up the tough stuff, the, the reasons that they're there, they feel safer because they've already had a, a chuckle with each other, right? Or you can see, you know, group members across the room kind of making eye contact um, because they hear something in another person's story that resonates with them and they start to feel safer. Oh, maybe this is a place for me. Hey, uh, Chris and Karen, could you, and I'm, I'm sure people are, are really interested in this and I know, I know there's a whole book on it, but is there a way you could describe the model of, of, of motivational interviewing groups in terms of the way that, that y'all have um, put it, pulled it together? Because I think people are, you know, to take it from the abstract to something that's a little more, has a little more clarity around it. So why am I in groups and how, what's one way of doing it? Aaron, you seem really on a roll, so I'm happy to get back. Well, I don't want to take up all the space either. I'm happy for you to jump in. Space on, space on. <laughs> Oh, we're gonna, so one of the one of the things that Karen's better at me is in a group with silence and waiting. Okay. We'll see here. So I think you know I've I've been really interested in listening about couples, and I was thinking about this kind of dimension from interdependency that you're talking about, Tyrell, to independent uh, participants, and. It's true that most of our group work has been more on the independent participant side. And for me in particular, a lot of work that I've done in recent years is kind of general adult outpatient mental health practice where uh, and I, I live in a city. So people generally don't know each other, don't have even any outside contact. Worlds don't overlap at all. But I know when people do groups in smaller communities, that's not necessarily the case. And so that's kind of moving over a little bit. And I was thinking to, you know, some of the things that Karen already mentioned. Um, I remember once early on, we were trying to sort some of this out. And well, Karen, you'll probably remember this. We were at a, a clinic where there was a couple, where it was an HIV care clinic and a couple, and they both wanted to be group participants. And we kind of wrangled with that issue for a little bit of, could we bring a couple inside a group that was otherwise independent. And Karen, I know you'll remember, uh, we were doing a group in a perinatal addiction residential treatment center. Oh. And there were, you know, various issues in the resident, in the, in the residence, of course, people live together, you know, and so you can be as independent uh, out in the community as you want. But when you are living together, you know, the things that happen in group lead over to life together and you start to get some of that interdependence. And, you know, we live in a, or I live in a city, but it's a relatively smaller city. And so some of the people in the treatment center knew each other 
from, as they said, out on the street. And at one point, we had a situation where two of the women were telling their stories in a group, um, both talking about the, the guy who'd gotten them pregnant, and one was in a relationship, and one was, uh, you know, somebody who said, I was with a guy who was in a bad relationship, so he was trying to get out, but hadn't, you know, you see where this is going, right? So at the moment that they both figured out that they were each pregnant by the same man in our group together, it was an interesting bit of interdependence to, to kind of uh, navigate our way through. Well, not only that, but the reaction of the other group members who immediately chimed in with lots of advice for both of these women to, to chuck him out of their lives, right? So it was a it was a moment of you know potential violence, which we have to have to work uh, you know sometimes on, and it you know ultimately ended up resolving itself with the two of them becoming roommates and deciding when they moved out they were going to live together and make this guy work multiple jobs to pay for both of the kids, and neither one were going to have them in in their lives otherwise. I believe is how it ended up. So Joel, I'm sorry that wasn't an overview of MI and groups, but it's kind of where my right. was going listening to, to Tyrell. So that's more like a cautionary tale about group, uh, group member screening, Chris. <laughs> it's just, you know, but it, but it was really interesting to think about this interdependence. And because we're often starting from a place where people are independent, will remain interdependent. I'm sorry, independent. But we're trying to create within the group a sense of mutual exploration, um, mutual outreach and mutual dependency in a way, not necessarily for what happens in their uh, lives outside, but within the moment, and you're starting from a place where that's already there. And while you're trying to capture it, you're also maybe trying to pull that apart just a little bit and get some space, it seems like. Yeah. I, I think, sorry, folks don't mind if I jump in for a moment. Yeah, jump right in. There's, there's, there's a couple things, I think, in your in your story, Chris, that, that, um, that I'm realizing. And one is that, that part of, so one is that part of doing MI with more than one person means being willing to jump in to help um, sort of moderate these conversations. That was always O'Leary's, um, O'Leary was sort of the Carl Rogers of couples therapists. And he, he talked a lot about the moderating function of the interventionist, that you, you have to be willing to get in and disrupt uh, patterns of conversation that could otherwise sort of become very, very unproductive between the couple. And you gave us, I think, one extreme example of a moment that probably required a certain degree of moderation um, from, from the group leader. But I think there, there is, when I, when I take people who've been trained to do very good individual MI work, and they start doing couples work, they often um, start feeling like there, there, there are moments where they're kind of inserting themselves into, into the conversation um, in ways they might not with, with an individual, but when you've got more than one person in the room, they sort of need that um, from you. Yeah. Yeah, so we, you know, we, well, I see David Rosengren's on here as a participant. I think when we were initially starting back and I say it, Karen, in the 1990s, um, David had already had some work and we borrowed that and a guy named Craig Noonan. And maybe there were a couple other examples out there that we were pulling to try to figure out how to do this in groups and not mess things up too badly. Um, 
But I think, you know, everyone on the webcast is at least generally familiar with motivational interviewing. And most of MI translates really well to a group um, environment, I think. Um, the, the spirit is just right for a group, from my perspective, to really, you know, build a, a good climate at the very beginning and start to build cohesion right from the start. Um, and, you know, I've seen people do it different ways, kind of teaching the group members some of the OR skills, the open questions and reflections and summaries. And otherwise, you know, others just modeling it. I generally just model it and don't really get into that um, unless there's a particular purpose to with the group. You know, if it's a communications group, we might get into that. Um, the, the, unfortunately, uh, one of the parts that I think doesn't fit particularly well is the idea of interviewing. And since that's half of the name of motivational interviewing, that is a bit of a challenge in that, you know, what we're really trying to do is facilitate conversations between people and building toward motivation uh, for all to change on the things that they're working on without necessarily um, spending a lot of time really interviewing in kind of a traditional sense. Although, Steve, I can I can almost hear in the back of my head this idea of looking at things together as an alter way, alternative way to think about interviewing. Um, there's a challenge in that in a group, any given person doesn't have as much floor time as when you're doing one-on-one -on -one work or, or I imagine even couples. Um, in a typical group length, somebody may speak five or 10 minutes total in a whole session. And so... Some of our work from the beginning was thinking about how can we get the, the best, the essence of MI and <laughs> tweak it in a way that even when people aren't speaking, we can do our part to help bring them along on a change process. Um, and so that's at first seemed like a challenge, but I think over time has felt like a gift to me that you know now when I do MI one-on-one, -on -one, feel, I feel so responsible because the only real place for inspiration to come is from the client's story. Since MI isn't really a style we're teaching or doing a lot of self-disclosing, there's a lot of technical work to work with the you know, details of the story, where when you're in a group, there's inspiration all around. You know, other people struggling with issues, seeing people you know, make changes that they didn't know that they could or even try and struggle with it is just such an uplifting kind of um, experience for people in groups that I feel like our job is just getting the group going and, you know, tweaking a little bit here and there. And then the group does a lot of the work that I feel like we're left with the responsibility to do what we're doing one-on-one -on -one or dyadic MI. I do agree that the power of the group lies within the group and not necessarily with the, the group leader or leaders. Um, but Part of how you get that inspiration and that um, set of group members looking to each other and enjoying each other's stories and learning from each other and wanting to help each other is by starting things off well. And certainly there are better and worse ways to start groups, right? And, you know, typically we've been very careful. I saw a comment a minute ago flow by from Nava in Israel about what about the group member who as soon as they get into the group start telling their, their deepest, darkest secrets, right? 
And that's actually a catchphrase I use a lot in group is, you know, I will say right up front to the group members, you know, if it's the first session today, we're going to keep things a little bit light. We're not going to delve into anyone's deepest, darkest secret today. And that usually gets a laugh and a little bit of relief from people, right? Because some people don't know what the group is going to be like. Um, And really try to ask the group to tell us some things that are on the positive side. I mean, obviously they're coming for therapy. There's something going on, something that they think is wrong in their life, but it's totally acceptable. And actually I think recommended to start with the, the positive parts of humanity that are in the group so that folks can start to see each other as people, not just as other problems, right. And start to, uh, realize, oh, I have in common with her something like this. And, and with this guy, I have this little thing in common. And, oh, she likes something that I like. It, it gives you a really positive flowing energy to start the group. And especially because many people in, in the U.S., at least, are mandated to go to certain kinds of treatments, often delivered in a group. And they're usually not coming totally willingly and happy to be there. Right. And so it's a a bit of a lift and a surprise if you start off with this more positive, you know, positive memories, happy things from their life, uh, dreams and goals and hopes, as opposed to, you know, I'm Karen and I'm an alcoholic and, you know, my relationship has fallen apart. And that's a horrible way to start out a group, frankly. I'm I'm. I'm thinking already we've sort of identified some common themes and processes, and there may be a few others that are worth sort of naming. One, one is one that we've already talked about is this idea of like beginning, beginning with what works, and then also the the sort of cultivation of cohesion among the people that you're working with. The other thing that I think has been implicit in this conversation, but maybe worth saying for folks who are listening, is that. Sometimes just in speaking uh, casually, the word dependence um, kind of has a negative connotation to it. Being dependent on someone is, is maybe not such a great thing often when we say it. But when I think about people in a relationship being dependent on one another or people in a group coming to be dependent on one another for the support that's provided there, I'm not actually saying something that's bad. Um, or or at least I'm certainly not saying something that is inherently bad. Dependence, as I think about that term, simply means that you rely on someone to make things that you want to have happen, happen in your life. And that isn't inherently bad, right? There are ways that dependence can become problematic, especially if there are power imbalances and whatever. But in many ways, the idea of relying on one another in order to make good things happen is not inherently problematic. And I think both what I do with couples and what you all are doing with groups sort of takes that stance that dependence is not a bad word. Um, The other thing that's implicit in what you're talking about and that also I I have really seen the need to do is to either implicitly or explicitly build in a communication enhancement components. Um, I I have spent a lot of time thinking about how to do strengths-based communication skills training 
in a way that is very MI consistent. So we have the couple talk about, you know, when they're successful at talking through things they disagree about, when they run into challenges and what works for them when they meet those challenges. There has to, there, there almost always has to be some component where you're sort of cultivating the working alliance between the two of them uh, in a way. And I think that that we're, we're sort of talking around that. And I just kind of wanted to, to make that a, 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 an explicit part of this conversation, that communication has a, a place at the table in these multi-person interventions. And I think those two tie together. You're, you're communicating ways to help build is Mutuality, a better word than interdependence. I, I was trying to listen to your comments about dependency having a negative connotation to it. Um, and then thinking about Steve talking about teams and that seem kind of somewhere between in some ways on if there's this continuum from independence to interdependence or mutuality. Um, so Steve, I wonder if you, you know, have things you might share about your work with the teams, uh, groups of people that are actually in a relationship and working toward a common goal already together. Yeah, you know, if I look, Chris, if I look back on the decades, we started off in MI with a specialist therapeutic orientation that in that those days was focused on addiction. And, and one view, I'm not saying it's the only or the best one, one view of the journey has been one of stepping outside and beyond into wider areas of application because we recognize that a lot of what we're working on in MI is happening naturally, or at least the problems people are tackling out there in all sorts of circumstances are readily amenable to the kind of wisdom that comes from MI. So, you know, listening to this conversation, I'm conscious of the fact that in my in my little world at the moment, working in sport, but it's the case in my work in education and other settings, groups are ongoing. They exist. They exist naturally. People are usually dependent on each other because you're lumped together. Uh, there's usually power imbalance built into it. I mean, I'm thinking of a sports team, but it could be in any organization. Um, people are mandated to sit in that meeting. You know, you go to a meeting and you have to attend. Um, and they know each other and they hate each other and they love each other and they would rather not be there. And some of them would really like to be there. And many of them are in, are. Look, so that's pretty chaotic, what I've just described. And um, what I've noticed is that the folk who are running these meetings are not trained to get the best out of the people, whatever the setting. So I'm just, just listening to this and, you know, um, wondering what Chris and Karen's third edition will be of their book. You know, if the second one is still, you know, solidly MI people coming into a group who don't know each other, um, the incredible potential of bringing the wisdom of what you guys are talking about into these other settings just blows my mind. 
So I'm listening to this and thinking, wow, well, that can be useful. But someone's got to do the translational work. It's not going to be me because I've gone feral, as you know. <laughs> oh, uh, Steve, there's there's really something to what you're saying, because, you know, whether it's a sports team or a group or a couple, part of what has to happen to make things work well in uh, in the therapy or the the conversation is that connection, right? <clears throat> is helping them to feel connected, not only to you potentially as the group leader or the therapist, but also, or the coach. Um, uh, it, it's to feel connected to each other as well. And to feel, to start to develop that identity of, oh, we're in this together. And even though I may not like this thing about him or that thing about her, we're kind of in it together and I see ways that they can help me and I can maybe help them, right? And one of the healthiest things that happens often in a group is when one member tells another member how something that they heard the other member say helped them. That is like the gold in the mine, <laughs> um, you know, when you're working with groups because all of a sudden those two are very deeply connected and One's expressing gratitude for the other and the other one probably hasn't had enough of that in their life. And they, they now feel like their, their heart is, you know, uh, has gotten big, like the Grinch's heart, right? <laughs> yeah, that's just super. You see, these are little jewels, which are, are worth picking on. I'll only add one more thing is that in my world, little world of sport, they moving physically, the group is moving physically through space as time unfolds, and yet they're operating as a group. It's another story, eh? Mm. In aesthetic story. Well, and actually, it's a well-known thing in groups that if your group is kind of stale and stagnant, get them up and move. Switch chairs around, right? Rearrange the group or you know, uh, divide them up a little bit and give them a little duo exercise. These two go over there, these two go over there, these, you know, the physical movement can have a really um, sort of naturally healing effect. So I'm not, I'm not surprised at all that in sport where people are always moving um, and often depending on the sport have to move together in a very uh, kind of structured and flowing way. Um, you know, that's where you can, can get a lot of important connections. And, you know, the other concept that this brings up for me that, that Chris and I are going to talk about more in this new edition of the book is momentum, right? Building momentum towards change. And that can happen for an individual, but it certainly happens, I'm sure, in couples, Tyrell, and also in different kinds of groups. In my mind, I'm kind of thinking of this as an MI, uh, a practitioner, you know, and, and thinking, how do I, as Steve was saying, how do I <clears throat> translate what y'all are talking to into motivational interviewing? And Karen, what you were just saying about building momentum and looking at the four processes of MI is you're moving in towards that evocation part of things where, you know, you've kind of gone through um a lot of the preparatory kind of change talk kind of stuff and people are building momentum towards making a commitment and moving towards change 
Would that be fair enough to say? Well, sometimes it doesn't seem that obvious in a group because a lot of it is interior. So while one person might be talking about a change, another person in the group is listening and maybe feeling inspired by that. And, and they're moving forward in their own momentum towards change. Or sometimes they're feeling intimidated, like, oh, I'm not there yet. I'm not ready. Or maybe even they feel less than because they're like, oh, well, how come she's changing so quickly and I'm still stuck? Right. right. So part of what we want to do is be mindful of those differences. You know, um, it, almost always in a group, there are going to be a few members who are lagging behind the others in progress. And, you know, part of our, our goal as a facilitator is to not let that person get left behind mm. or feel left behind. And, and I'm, I'll say one more thing, and then I'm really interested in what Ken, Kendall has to say and where she's at with this conversation is, so what does MI bring to the table in these, in these situations with teams and couples and groups, because we're talking a lot about process, but what is what is it that MI brings to the, why MI? There was a, um, a book written, and I can't remember exactly what it was called, but it was talking about people who go into therapy, they don't necessarily go in for the answers, but they go in to have the person's calm nervous system. Hmm. And sometimes when I think about why MI, I think about the MI as a clinician helps to keep me in a safe nervous system space. And that whether that's working with individuals, groups or couples, that often people will mirror that if, if we're comfortable and authentic in that space. And I think that motivational interviewing can really help us as clinicians be able to stay out of that polarization and out of that, like certainly with couples and with complex conversations. And also when you're in groups, how easy it is to step it towards people that you are activated by, you know, that you kind of, you always have some people in a group that you'll be more connected to. And it almost holds you in that space of safe neutrality um, as a facilitator, both with couples and with groups. And I think that's where MI can really be a beautiful approach to use. I don't know what you think to that. Yeah, oh, I definitely think MI helps to emotionally regulate the therapist, particularly because I'm I'm trying to so much empathize and better understand what's going on with somebody else. A absolutely, uh, particularly people that um, they get anxious and nervous, or there's a lot of um, emotional energy in the room. Absolutely, or tension in the room. Can I? I think it Kendall, can I ask you, there's a wonderful question here from Palmyra Brown saying, what is the panel's favorite open-ended question to ask in a group? It's wild. I love it. But I don't, where would, we, where, what stage are we at with the group? Like that's, there's so many questions that I could ask. First of all, we're, probably... we're the first session, the first session of the group, everybody's sitting down and everyone's looking at you as a therapist going, okay, what next? What would you say? How are y'all doing? <laughs> Pressure is on with favorite. That's like a key word, but yeah. you know, how, 
how can we best be together? I mean, yes. what, will, what will be the most helpful for each person here for us to, to do and not do? I mean, I don't like ground rules and stuff like that, but I like to have a conversation about, you know, how can this be an environment that is, you know, the best for anyone? And that obviously usually means safe enough for people to get involved, but it means not so safe that people don't want to put things on the table that are maybe a little risky or, you know, that they're struggling with. One of my questions, I, I love that actually, Chris, that you don't like group agreement so I, I'm quite a fan of contracting within groups depending on the type of group that you're doing but I one of my questions would be how best do you want to show up in this group um, and what part of you do you want to bring to this group and I think that what you've just shared there is a nice way of holding that space as well of what you need um, Karen what would be yours well, I, you know, I, I guess I keep thinking about humorous um, aspects of starting a group. Um, and the last few times I did a group, it was in a healthcare setting. And, you know, I would sort of jokingly ask at near the top of the group, you know, uh, how many of you want to be put on the spot today? You know, to mm -hmm. sort of demystify that fear that people come in like, oh, my God, I don't want to be the first one to talk or oh, I don't want to be the one, first one to say something really personal or embarrassing or, um, you know, so so just uh, and of course, laughing and making sure the group gets it, that it's sort of a joke and, and you know, following it up with, you know, in my experience, people have a range of reasons to come to groups and a range of reactions to being here. And one, one of those might be, some of you might be feeling really nervous. Others might just want to rush ahead and tell your story and get it over with. You know, that also usually gets a laugh. And, and, and that process will calm people down a bit because they're like, oh yeah, we're just all humans in this room together. You know, we're, we're here for some reason, but we don't have to spill our guts right now. <laughs> I think Tyrell's trying to been jumping in a few times here. You're so polite. I, I um, I, thanks. Uh, no, so I actually, I, I wanted to go back just slightly one topic and think about this question of of why motivational interviewing, um, right? Like that, Yalom has a very lovely book on how to do group MI, and there are lots and lots of different schools of couples therapy that were around. And so this question of like, do we really need an MI for couples? Like, what is that doing for the world? And, I, and so I think I thought about it a fair bit. And I think some part of it is that MI has a lot to offer the counselor in terms of sort of mindset and hard set and regulation. I also think, at least in the couples world, there is something unique about where MI with couples lives. There are quite a lot of couples therapies where the, the end goal of therapy is essentially relationship quality. People may come in the spirit of we're worried that our relationship is falling apart. We may be headed towards divorce. We're going to end this. And the therapy is designed with the idea of improving relationship quality. That's great. I don't have any objections against that. It's, it's a lovely end. But that's not a great vehicle for thinking about how to support individual behavior change uh, in the context of working with a couple. 
And then there are some paradigms where people have tried out substance use treatment and they've involved the partner, but they all sort of assume that there's one person who uses substances and the other one who, who doesn't. The thing that I think has been unique and that MI has offered a way to think about is, is that in MI with couples, we're thinking a lot about the couple's functioning. We, we want to draw out and highlight what works about this relationship and what you value about this relationship and, and what you bring to one another and how you can work together more effectively. And we're doing all of that in order to help you support one another towards some behavioral goal, whether that is HIV prevention or HIV care or substance use treatment or whatever. I think in a way, MI with couples was the first approach to thinking about couples that positioned relationship functioning as a mechanism or as a vehicle to help people then accomplish individual behavior change. Um, and I, I wonder if in a way, MI with groups did something sort of sort of similar in the way you positioned the the provider's role in terms of cultivating sort of um, cohesion and then evoking change talk and momentum for change. Well, I think one of the things I learned and continue to learn from MI is that the world really doesn't need many more experts. And, you know, Steve always talks about don't be too clever. And, you know, the, the issue in groups is a lot of that, like everybody's heads are busy. Everybody has some sort of hope for connection and bonding with other people and also fear of it and histories of attachment problems, all, you know, lots of complicated stuff. And what I learned from MI is that stuff can be really important, but it doesn't mean it has to be what you talk about that what we're really trying to do is help people into a future that they find better for themselves than the present that they're in or the past they came from. And MI offers a lot of possibilities for things you could explore and techniques we can use to do them and ways to communicate. But really, it, a lot of what I think about is all the stuff I'm leaving out and that I don't need to, to get into you know, really complex psychological theory. I don't need to do skill training. And these, there's value in all these things, but that uh, with an MI group, um, coming together, being together in a positive spirit, um, really giving our attention to each other uh, in a compassionate way where we're, we're really giving each other uh, energy um, as they're speaking or as they're having difficulty speaking or just as they're present. And kind of all being together, um, there are things that there are details that will happen that will bring about positive change, but the essence is the most important part. It, we, there's no particular pathway out of the woods. We'll make one, um, uh, you know, as a group that we can kind of work together in, and then each person will get out and kind of go do their own thing. But um, that 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 sense of being in a space where we're not trying to pick apart what each other thinks or says or does, or, you know, why they've done things in the past or, you know, what they haven't done, but instead we're just simply trying to help each other find our way to a little better future um, helps guide me. 
In that spirit of helping each other, do you mind if I ask a sort of nuts and bolts question of the two of you? Go for it. In, so in the couples world, there are multiple schools of thought about combining individual and couples sessions. And there are, there are really good clinicians who feel all sorts of ways about those things. I have generally taken the stance of only working with the couple together, with the rationale being that sometimes you can escape a difficult conversation by putting people in separate rooms and talking to them individually. But ultimately, the, the conflict that's emerging is something that they walk out the door with, even if I, even if I split them up. So I'm, I'm curious, as you two have been thinking about group work, so much of what you're talking about is the cultivation of cohesion and identity and this sort of collective momentum. Um, I'm defaulting to the assumption that you are primarily imagining working with the group members only in the context of the group and you're not doing individual sessions around the group activity. Um, Am I correct in that? Or where do you where do you stand on that? So I, I think Chris and I have had similar and also different experiences with this. Um, currently, my only clinical work is in the context of an HIV care clinic uh, where I do psychotherapy and counseling. Um, and I also work with um, a substance use counselor and we are doing a group which has at least one member already that I have seen individually, right? So, um, you know, when that kind of thing happens, I think it's really important, at least for me, uh, in my individual therapy with that person, you know, I talked about this before it would happen. Um, mm. You know, so that I, I wanted to, you know, make sure that they knew that even though we had this individual relationship, this was going to be a different experience um, and, you know, to, to make sure that that was going to be okay, because individual therapy, you know, you're focused literally only on that one person. And clearly in a group, I would have to be sharing my attention with other people too. And, you know, I might seem different to the person I was working with when it's in a group context than an individual. So I think full disclosure when possible is just the best way to go, right? This particular person thought that it would be comfortable enough. Um, but, you know, had it not happened that way, then we would have had to make a choice. Um, you know, maybe they wait until the next group convenes that I wasn't going to be a part of, or maybe we look for some other options. Yeah, I, I was just, that was a great thought and question, Tyrell, because I was as, as a facilitator, when I run groups, sort of my, my mantra, my number one thing, well, not number one, but a top thing in my mind is I don't want to do individual therapy in a group setting. And I, I've seen people kind of go around the circle and do a little session with each person and, and, and everybody else just kind of gets bored. Um, I was reflecting back to the, the last groups I was running a few weeks ago uh, before kind of striking out on my own. I was working with men who had just come out of prison. And a lot of these guys were gang affiliated, histories of violence, you know, just go down the, the list, right? And so, you know, put them in a group of about nine, about nine fellows. And, you know, the opening group, I don't care what your opening question is, you're not going to get much. These are very non-disclosive um, 
men about how they feel that vulnerability is a is a is a risk um because it can get used against you in prison and in this residential setting that i was working in um and so i implemented a lot of the structure that chris and karen talk about in motivational interviewing groups because it gave them something to do and the first thing i was trying to do with them is to do the linking that that uh chris and chris had showed me, you know, the importance of that. And, you know, we talked about what's important to them, you know, and what do they want for the future to kind of build a little momentum. Um, and, you know, found common denominators between people and between the group. And pretty much everyone in the group said, what they don't want is to go back to prison. So then we could start a conversation moving forward about how to, how not to do that. Um, but all the while we're building cohesion where maybe two sessions later, somebody takes more of a risk and they talk about their marriage or they talk about, you know, I haven't seen my kids in seven years. Um, and then I think, I find, am I really helpful in this setting? Because as, as I'm sitting there and you, you both have talked about it, is that people are at different places, whether they're in a couple or in a group. And it's like, you can externalize the ambivalence that's in the room. And you can you can start working with it and you can say, well, you know, it seems like, you know, you three guys are really interested in and in, in, in working towards making change in your life. And some of these other folks are kind of sitting on the fence and maybe get them to have a conversation with each other about where they're at and why they're there. Um, but I mean, the, I, I kind of look at the group as one, in lieu of a better word, organism. Um, and 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 it's particularly as they become more cohesive. And and the couple's kind of the same way, you know. They it's great. I like what you said that I wanna I wanna keep drinking, but I don't want you to drink. That's a very common thing in couples therapy. You know, yeah. and, and how do you resolve that ambivalence that, that the relationship is holding? So those yeah. are my those are the thoughts that you, you guys have been kind of creating in my head. Steve, what were you gonna say? Yeah, just when I listen to Joel and Turrell, I wonder like what's MI about this? You know, what is the contribution of MI to the way you're speaking about your work? And I don't think it's a bad thing at all if MI, you know, dissolves and integrates with other approaches at all. So I'm not, I'm not presenting an orthodox purist argument. But I do wonder, and uh, uh, how about this from a kind of a naive standpoint of somebody who isn't an MI group therapist, that what was special about MI was avoiding confronting people and solving people's problems for them, because that generates kickback, and um, framing resistance as a relational problem, and doing everything we can to help people evoke their best ideas about how they want to change from them if if that's like i don't know that's but then i think karen makes a comment like thinking about groups that there's always one or two people in the group well karen that is like goes on worldwide in every setting there isn't a manager or a sports coach who hasn't told me in fact i met an elite sports coach recently who my mentor, who lost his job because there were two or three people at the beginning of his stint in this club who were troublemakers and he never managed to deal with them. 
and they undermined what he did and he lost his job. Um, so these are naturally occurring chaotic exchanges where the manager, coach, whomever, is having individual chats with people in the corridor all the time. And I am struggling, and I love it, and I'm enjoying it. I'm struggling to make sense of, well, how do you take those very special qualities of MI to help that manager, that coach, that teacher? And I, I hope it's not as, you know, uh, I'm not suggesting you answer it. I'm just throwing out a puzzle there. Um, but trying to hold on dearly to the unique bits that MI really does contribute. And I think I've tried to articulate what they are, but maybe I'm goofy and gone feral and uh, I've, I have had a couple of glasses of wine and no. smoke and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so despite despite the couple of glasses of wine in this room, I um so I I actually I think you do I think you do raise a good point and I think it's it's interesting it's interesting and I think helpful to me to have somebody push on this a little bit because um I, I think on some level I'm tempted to respond to you and say well of course it's MI. Um, but but then I have to pause and think about like what is what is that based on other than just what I'd love to tell you. Um, but I think I think there are a number of ways in which at least what I'm doing with couples is uniquely MI. And and one is that I I have really tried um, by using O'Leary's work, who really like sort of took what Rogers was doing in individual humanistic psychotherapy and talked about how those humanistic ideals that Rogers discussed are manifest in humanistic couples therapy. I've really tried to, to bring that client-centered orientation into the entire framework for working with couples. Um, I think Emma, Emma raised a, a really great question, which is, you know, what happens when you discover in the course of working with a couple that ultimately they don't want to be in this relationship anymore. Um, and my answer to your question, Emma, is you, you do, in my mind, that is a great place to think about the stance of equipoise, because as I, as I tell my trainees, it's not your job to keep these folks together and it's not your job to break them up, right? It is, it is your job to help them, you know, think about the best relationship they can realize to consider how long they want to keep doing this. And if ultimately they decide they don't want to do it anymore, then, then each of them continues to be an autonomous individual who gets to make that choice. And we could potentially help them think about how to end this relationship in ways that minimize unnecessary emotional pain and suffering. So I think those, those humanistic elements are maybe not, maybe they haven't been fully highlighted in what we've been talking about, but I think that's really a, a big component of what we're doing. Um, and and I, I, I want to believe that, that in the same way that we might think of, dis, of, of disorder or reactance as a relational problem, I also think that part of what we're doing in thinking about cohesion and the centrality of cohesion uh, and the the the, the the bonding of group membership with individual identity 
that in a way we're we're expanding the concept of discord so that it encompasses not just the relationship each of the people has with the counselor, but the relationship that they have with one another. And that on some level, what we're doing is mitigating discord between the couple or within the group and and facilitating a, a stronger relationship, which is almost sort of a working alliance among the people in these groups. Um, so I don't know, maybe that's wishful thinking, but I, I want to believe that there is something truly am I uh, in this yet. So Steve, I, I was then reflecting on your question and, and it's a really good question. And I think in some ways you answered it for me because I think what am I, <clears throat> and <clears throat> whether it's individual group or practice, it gives me, it helped inform my thinking about being with people in a helpful way to make them change and the change process. And so the thing that initially grabbed me about motivational interviewing coming from the addictions field is the non-confrontational, non-kind um, of therapeutically aggressive approach. And, and I think, you know, thinking about engaging and working with people in a different kind of way that's more collaborative and less expert driven, and then having some, some, some skills around how to facilitate that conversation and some things to listen for and how to interact with those things is really helpful. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a way of thinking about change that's probably been most impactful in my practice. Yeah, it'll be very interesting, perhaps, to hear what Chris and Karen say. Because they've heard us ranting and raving about cutting across context. God, we've heard about Timothy Leary. You know, we've like <laughs> coaches. I mean, poor souls. You know, yet there's there's a certain essence that I pick up in in Chris and Karen's work that um, feels very exciting in its potential to help people outside the therapy world. Um, but I, I wonder what Chris and Karen make of all this divergent ranting. Well, I don't think it's ranting, but um, you know, as, as y'all were talking, what kept coming up to me was, you know, when I'm doing MI training, um, you know, the, the whole spirit of MI piece. And, and that's where I think more than a specific technique, I think the MI groups and the MI with couples is very consistent with MI and, and is full of MI. I mean, you know, it's evocative rather than telling I know better than you, right? Uh, it's accepting, especially in a group context, I'm going to go in assuming and accepting that people in the group are going to be in wildly different places in terms of readiness for change, interest in change, why they're in the group, who sent them there, all of that. So I'm, I'm going to enter with that spirit of acceptance um, that I can see you as you are now and be comfortable with that, even if I could see there, there's a long road to go, right? Um, and I'm going to try to collaborate with you and form a partnership, not just with each member of the group, but also with the group as a whole. I'm going to try to be a good partner for them and be a good collaborator for them. 
And then finally, you know, all throughout the work in groups um, is the the construct of compassion, right? And how I always describe compassion if I'm doing training is it's seeing someone suffering and offering them some solace, right? It's offering them, I can see your suffering. I'm not going to try to fix it, but I can see it and acknowledging it. And that very definitely happens in a group. And oftentimes, once the group gets rolling a bit, it happens between the members where someone will tell an awful story or a very sad thing that happened and other members are welling up with tears or, you know, one will reach over and pat the other ones on the knee, you know, to try to like, just say, I'm here for you. That compassion is all through uh, the way we do the groups with, with the MI spirit. Yeah. I've really appreciated compassion coming to the forefront in MI. Uh, I think it's, it could be the most important thing any of us do helping one another. Um, so, so, so how am I, so Steve, I think of MI as like, there is the piece of direction without directiveness activity, whatever. I should have thought of that. But anyway, that, you know, focusing on forward movement without telling somebody which way to go and how to get there. The the bit of warmth that's in MI without over-involvement, um, that you're there and you're with somebody, but it's not necessarily, you can meet somebody where they are, but you're not getting in, in their situation with them. And again, getting over-involved. And there's also a lightness to MI. It doesn't, it's, it's not like a toxic positivity to me where you can't go to deep and difficult things, but it doesn't push people there if that's not really where, what's going to be helpful for them in the moment of kind of moving forward towards, you know, the, the future that they want. So those are the pieces, some of the pieces that guide me when we're working together. And generally within a group, um, I'm trying to get everybody to, to kind of get on board with those ideas. And so a group that seems really different on the surface or initially, I'm really looking for similarities and ties to pull them together. And then other groups that at, on, at the outset seem really homogeneous because they're defined as a group to come and deal with a particular problem. Um, I'm looking for the heterogeneity, the differences, the divergence and diversity in people so that we don't get caught in groupthink. Um, Tipping, you know, the issue of culture has been raised here, and it's such a big issue to 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 think about. Um, and I, you know, I would love if we could bring some people forward. You know, there have been lots of interesting comments. So I don't know. I'm not trying to run your webcast for you, but I don't know if we have time to do that. Well, we got lots of time. I mean, it just depends on how much time everybody has. Um, Kendall, we'll, we'll start organizing that, and and. We'll ask if anybody wants to come on and talk for sure and share. Kendall, what, what have you been writing stuff down? So what, what's going on in your mind? No, I write little note taker, aren't I? I'm just trying yeah. to get it out of my head. Um, I think, I mean, it's just, it's such a rich conversation, isn't it? And I'm learning so much by everything. And I, I keep thinking about the similarities between using MI with individuals and the similarities between using it with groups and within couples. And even when you're 
um, working in therapeutic groups and also when you're working training MI. And I'm really trying to reflect on the similarities of that. And I guess what came up for me and what I wrote down was Steve, actually, um, years ago when we were working in Wales once, he was saying, um, I think he used the expression that we should be like going from being little door mice or mouse mice to um, big birds of prey. Did you? I think you may have told me this even, Chris, as well once. And that when we're doing like reflections to summaries, that we're coming up and going quite meta. And what I find fascinating is the sense of the evocation and the empowerment process. Often I find when I go meta, that can be a beautiful transition from focus to evocation, be that within groups or within individuals. And what I mean by doing that is by summarizing and identifying this is where I think we are where do you think we are and what I love about MI is it is that bringing everybody into the space with you so you're not the expert Chris you were saying there's too many experts and where MI I think is beautiful is it holds everybody in that adult space Mm. um and and and, and isn't it that sense of okay well if I'm going meta then I'm also inviting you to decide what we do next and saying, you know, okay, well, this is where we've come, and where are we as a group, and where are we as a couple? What's going on here? What's let's just slow it down. What, what's going on, and what's going to be the most helpful? Now, I'll do that with individuals, and I'll do that with my groups, and say when we're falling into maybe a negative trap, or we're all getting stuck, or you know, and I might say, okay, I'm just going to slow it down and press pause. Where do we all think we are? And so, from an MI perspective, I think that's where what I'm taking is that it it allows that empowerment and evocation, not just around behavior change, but it's also an invitation to be intentional about what choices (laughs) we're making around change or about the journey towards change. And yeah, that's, that's the little things that I've been writing down along the way. Beautiful. (gasps) And I'd like to build on something you said, Kendall, I think that's really useful that sometimes in a group, we, you know, members are talking and going kind of around the circle and sharing something. And maybe as a facilitator, you're doing some simple reflection here, or maybe a complex reflection there. And part of what we do with that to address the group as a whole is to make sort of a reflection at the group level, right? Um, you know, it feels like people are starting to get really comfortable with each other because I'm hearing a lot of more intimate details coming out. You're starting to trust each other. I'll name that. Right. Um, And it's funny. I I think of it like a little group of kindergarten kids, all of a sudden they'll kind of giggle and beam. And um, you know, there's that moment of more connection, like, Oh yeah, we are in it together um, because you did that sort of summary reflection right yeah it is it's a way of threading and and using that process and I think that can be similar in couples when you're trying to create that that connection and the threading as well when and moving them to being a unit to decide what decisions they make together out you know within their own political system as well So, so that phenomena absolutely happens. We talk about it as like dyadic reflections, dyadic questions, relationship affirmations. They're things that you, that are said to the couple 
and that encompass content that is relevant to, to both people in the relationship. I don't I think this work has been done with groups. There's certainly been a lot of couples communication work that has examined the way people use pronouns. And when, when a couple speaks in the third person, when they talk about we and I, it actually is associated with, with how close they feel to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so interestingly, if as a counselor, we can speak to them as a third person unit, it, 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 it potentially then catalyzes that same sense of, of connectedness. So one of the things that I always loved about MI is that it was, it was one of the first times where I felt like I had a really precise way of thinking about language. And I think there's, there's an opportunity to, to bring some of uh, this really interesting work that has been done around how couples speak about themselves and what we can tell from just the way they use pronouns um, that potentially then informs the way we speak to them. There's, there's something that has been said several times, and I see this on the couple side in, in, I think, a way that is at least syntonic with what you're, you're talking about in groups, which is that part of the value, part of what the couples seem to get out of this is the opportunity to speak with one another. Um, now, what may happen more in couples than it does in your groups is that the therapy session or the counseling session launches a conversation that they then continue outside of the time together. But you're, you're setting, I think the, the longer I've done this, the more I, I have begun to think that the purpose of the counseling session is to set something in motion. And, and that the, the, the echo of that or that ongoing momentum is gonna result in things happening between sessions. And those things are not arbitrary or accidental. That's actually part of, the benefit like that is part of what makes this useful is the launching of of an internal uh way of thinking and the launching of a conversation um that it, like in many cases couples will say we've been trying to talk about this for a long time and we couldn't figure out how to get it started um so i, I think we you you see that on this side as well that makes a lot of sense to me and i want to expand that just a little bit um from, I think you'd probably agree with this, not just setting in motion or launching, but even setting free to get back into motion. But there are things that we have to remember were already happening before we came into the play with somebody and they've gotten stuck and it's just kind of helping get some obstacles out of their way at times. Um, and thinking about the language, so I want to get back to a little bit of, I think it was Steve's question um, about what is MI in a group. Some of it is, Karen, I've been thinking about it is just uh, broadening our definition of change talk a little bit, or I don't know if broadening is the right word, but um, change talk, I often like my first thought with change talk is usually go to change talk about something specific. And my head wants to get into the situation of the specific thing that somebody's talking about. And one-on-one that makes perfectly good sense. It's a good place to start. Um, in groups, while, you know, as Karen talked about, and you also talked about reflect doing dyadic or group reflections is very useful. But for me, even doing individual reflection, keeping out details and just kind of getting to the essence of, like, if you think about change talk categories, the darn cat, 
um, my mind might want to go to desire for something. As instead, just stick with the desire and reflect. You know, you're really wanting this for yourself, or you feel like it's a time when you know your your back's to the wall, and there's a change that you know is kind of just around the corner for you. Sorry, mixed metaphors there. Right. And leaving out those details about the individual situation is a way to keep everybody working inside their head. That a lot of what we're trying to do with people is, uh, Karen is often referred to it, uh, what do you say, Karen, not do interviewing with witnesses, individual sessions with witnesses, um, is keeping everybody involved and kind of staying generic or general in my reflections and Trying to set them up so that even if somebody's not talking, they're going through a change journey in their head. And I'm sure many of you who do couples or group work have had this happen where uh, somebody won't say anything, but then they'll come out towards the end of a session and say, at the beginning, here's where I'm at. And here's where after listening to people, I've been inspired. And here's what I've been thinking and where I've come to. And that's one of the things I really like about group work is we don't have to go through, we don't even have to revisit what they went through in their head just jump in, kind of helicopter into where they are at the moment, um, and then use that as a springboard to go back out to the group and keep building that group energy. Yeah, Chris, I don't know know where I got this from. It might have been you or I might have made it up. Was this, but I definitely got it from reading you and, and, and watching you and Karen. Was this idea of blowing a balloon up, that you, you, you gently blow a balloon up. This was, how I imagined you, and I've watched you work, sort of blow a balloon up and toss it out in the hope that they will toss this balloon around among themselves because it's gentle and it's thoughtful and it's it's got lightness and air and it's evocative. And if it pops, which is the equivalent of, you know, something going wrong, you, you just take another balloon and blow it up and it's got a different color, maybe some different words right. on it, and throw it back out. And I always found that very, uh, yeah, I don't know who came up with that idea, but I found it helpful to think about constructive conversation in a group along those lines. I like that. Let me just, let me just pause for one second, just because we're at, we're at 90 minutes and that's what I, I'd requested. We'd, we'd offered you guys, I'm happy to keep going. That's fine with me. We often do. And people stick around or they trail off. Um, but I just want to kind of acknowledge that, you know, we, you, you've done your um, friendly contractual obligation to join us. Um, and um, I want to keep going. Uh, Steve, I think you ought to have another glass of wine. You know, you, we got you talking about balloons. I want to know what's next. Um, <laughs> but, you know, one of the things I was thinking, Chris, when you were talking was about when I, when I participated as a participant in a group therapy experience for a year. and how much internal processing is going on for me when other people are working through their own stuck places or the stuff they're trying to work through because I'm thinking about them in relation to me. And, you know, even if things are still in quiet, there's still activity going on underneath the surface. Mm -hmm. And that's really the, one of the big benefits of a group, I think for treatment because there's only so much one can do as an individual therapist with that person uh, that will keep the person percolating throughout the next week. But in a group of peers, the, the member comes to see the other people in the group as their peers, right? 
And they're much more open to letting their peers' ideas percolate and, and, you know, they might expand on something. And the next week, sure enough, a couple of members come back and say, hey, when so-and-so said this, it got me started to think about this and here's what I did. And then somebody else will chime in. And that's when the beauty of group work really shows, right? And setting up those conditions where people feel safe to share I am moving forward in my journey and acknowledge the contributions of the other group members. You're golden then as the leader, you can pretty much sit back and relax <laughs> because things are, things are moving on their own now. That may be the group analog of the phenomena that I see when a couple comes in and says, this week we talked a lot about this thing that you brought up last week, where there's, there's something that they've carried forward and continue to sort of uh, ruminate on uh, or chew on uh, in the in the space between, if if what might help us pivot a little bit to the conversation about culture and also fits with what you were saying, Joel. I have realized something that is um, has been really salient to me in training people to work with couples. Which is that I, I have sometimes seen counselors who are, you know, really good at maintaining a, a non-judgmental stance in the room with one individual, and you put them in a room with a couple, and all of a sudden they get thrown off because they have, because we all have opinions about what a good relationship looks like and what a good partner should do and what is acceptable and unacceptable as a way to treat the people that you're with and how you should be obligated to take care of your children and your family and, and whatever, right? Like we all, all sort of have those beliefs. And I have seen people who are very, very good at holding sort of their heart in one hand and the clients in the other when they're in the room with one person, but put them in a room with a couple and they actually have to see that argument begin to play out or they watch what one person says to the other in real time. And all of a sudden they get activated in whole new sorts of ways. Um, so I have, I have found actually a fair amount of time in training and supervision spent allowing the counselor to sort of unpack their own beliefs about what good relationships look like and what good partners and parents and whatever do, and to then sort of practice perspective taking and to imagine what, what their clients in the, in the context that their clients are in, then like how do they make sense of these same things? So I've, I've seen a, a sort of... A, a new or an additional level of that, that work that I'm often doing with trainees. For, for me personally, I long ago realized I'll never be perfect and I'll never do a perfect session. And uh, one thing that's been helpful is kind of the freedom that comes with in a group of people there are always going to be some people who respond positively, some people who check out, and some people who respond negatively. And that I think Kendall was talking about this earlier, the important thing about just including everybody in the room, whatever experience you're having, um, you know, is, is there. And it 
helps me to not have those kind of writing reflexes that you're talking about, or at least that's how I think of them. To know that I don't have to save people from each other. I mean, I do have a responsibility to do some protection at times. Uh, that's a whole other topic that we could get into. Um, you know, but that my attention is more on making it a good environment for a group, helping, you know, get the group conversation going. And then I like that balloon thing. Now I'm going to have that balloon idea in my mind, um, you know, popping that around, um, you know, and that it, I think I learned one time, like what I thought was really one of the best group sessions I ever was involved in. And it wasn't me. It was such a, such an amazing group resulted in somebody leaving the group and not coming back and leaving upset. And it was a matter of people really giving this human being love, I think, that she had not experienced. And the way I walked away from it and kind of found a way to be okay with it is, you know, it was it was too much for her. She couldn't process and kind of come back because so much of her other surroundings were disappointing and you know, had led her to difficulties with attachment. But I'm hoping that, you know, as some time went by, she could look back and see, you know, the, the, that that moment is something that she would like to have more of. Because I'm really convinced, I, you know, I record sessions and I went back and looked at that one multiple times to say, did I miss a microaggression? Did I miss somebody doing something that maybe didn't register for me? And I just, all I saw was love and even that um, sometimes is not in the moment what, um, again, I don't want to say it's not what somebody needed or wasn't helpful, but it wasn't uh, something that she could continue on with at that moment. I realize exactly. that went off from what you were talking about. but it, Just to add to that, I mean, sometimes when somebody's experienced trauma, compassion can be seen as a threat, you know? And as a group facilitator with MI, sometimes somebody's, behavior of being really non-judgmental and being truly in MI and being with somebody can be threatening because they're not used to that sense of it being without a transaction or a reason that can be quite negative mm -hmm. and that power of the group the group and you know and so you know Chris you're such a seasons trainer that you would pick up on something I suspect quicker than anybody out mm -hmm. there and yeah, I think there, there are so many things like, is this real? Is this, you know, I'm sorry to use the word love. I'm sure there are more professional words, but is this love I'm experiencing real? And now that I've felt it, what happens if I really want this and this group doesn't continue and I don't have this elsewhere? Am I going to be even in more pain? Or how can I go forward into my life that's quite difficult and that be the only beacon of hope, you know, that that's sometimes it is too much for someone to, to carry and, and continue on with a group or with a, a couple's therapist, frankly, sometimes the couple's therapy process shines too harsh a light. Uh, not that, that the therapy is harsh, but that inside one member of the couple may be recognizing, uh Oh, this is not working. And, and it's just too scary. Can I Sorry, ask you a question, Kendall, or anybody? If, if, when I listen to Tyrrell, 
it, it, it's clear that his stance in couples work is neutral. And everybody's nodding their heads, and I absolutely can see that. Okay. When I listen to Chris and Karen and I read their work and I think about how they work, they're not neutral. They're in favor of, of growth. And they're trying to generate momentum and forward momentum in a group. And in that sense, they're, they're, they're not neutral. They will be selectively highlighting things that people are saying that are in favor of, of growth and development and tossing the balloon back. So it, there might be, there might be a, a bit of a, not a problem, but we might need to think about couples work and group work a little differently here. Just a thought. Although I, I haven't heard the couples to be neutral as much as not getting in the middle of somebody else's argument, maybe. Uh, looks like you're going to share with us directly. Well, so I, I guess there are, in my mind, sort of two different issues at hand. Um, couples work is, at least as I imagine couples motivational interviewing to be, is neutral with respect to whether these two people should remain in a relationship. Uh, because I, I think I think to begin from the outset with the notion that that it is good if they stay together and bad if they break up or the reverse becomes somewhat coercive. So in, in that sense, it is quite neutral. Um, I don't know that couples MI is any more neutral than than MI with an individual is with respect to, to change that that we would we would assume that that we're not here to dictate change but but to the extent that that someone identifies a goal and something that they wish to work towards we're then going to be selective in the way we attend to to speech around that um i think the the i may not have a very i'm 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 probably guilty of not having a very romantic way of talking about uh about couples work per se but so much of what i imagine when i think about you know facilitating dyadic functioning or drawing out what people value or what works about a relationship is that you're laying the foundation for change you're laying the foundation for these people um, to ideally be able to reach consensus about where they want to go and then move in that direction more successfully. So I don't, I don't, I, I think without a doubt, um, I do, I do in a, in a full-throated way, I think we need to be neutral about whether the couple stays together, but I don't, I don't necessarily know that, that there is a, a, a particular mandate for neutrality around um, potentiating change or attending to, to change talk. Can I step in and add to that as well? And then Chris, I can see you've unmuted. And I, I was just I was just going to tell him I feel smarter just listening to him. So that's all. <laughs> you, you have the same effect on me. So I love no, 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 no. I do the opposite. That's the thing. <laughs> but but I think Steve's point about neutrality and Tyrell. There was something that came up for me as well around that was that, Steve, with MI, when we're looking at ambivalence as well, often when couples come in, they're almost both sides to the ambivalence. 
And in a way, part of MI can be about resolving the ambivalence within the couple. And, you know, Tyrell's right about, you know, maybe withstand neutrality about what the ending of that relationship is or what the journey of that relationship looks like. But from an MI perspective, it sits very comfortably with me about you've come in here because you've got stuck, just like a human comes to me individually because they've got stuck. And MI is a wonderful navigation tool around that. That, from, from my side, that's what I was thinking when, when you brought that up. I don't know what you think, Steve, you're shaking your head. You're like, that's a load of crap, Kendall, just shut up. No, no, no I, I, I'd rather just reflect about what you're saying. Okay. I hear you. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I suspect it's, it's not, a, it's not a, a dichotomy. You're either directional or you're neutral. I think that's been a big problem in the MI field. Um, I suspect that it's like more like a knob that gets more and less neutral um, and changes moment to moment as well. So when I think of it like that, and I think that matches the reality probably quite well, it becomes very difficult to say, whoa, 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 whoa. You know what I mean? Uh, it's difficult to distill or to generalize about it because it's, it's, a, it's a really nuanced business. Um, I've, I've, I've swung backwards and forwards in terms of my aspirations for the other person. Um, in the space of five minutes, you know. So let's, yeah. So it's nuanced, eh? It's nuanced. Um, what what I found interesting as well about this is the sense of how couples work that Tyrell's talking about links to us being facilitators with in groups. In a way, when we're working with couples around relational injuries, when we're working with people around trying to create that connection, as facilitators, you're also identifying relational injuries that have happened. And it, and it came up, Chris, when you were talking about the person, you know, who it wasn't right for and that you had to reflect on whether something had happened or whether that was just their journey. And almost in a way, as being a group facilitator, you're also a couple's therapist, but more of a relational therapist because you're working constantly with potential threat and injuries to the cohesion of it. And so you're using those similar techniques. Does that does that resonate with you, Karen, Chris, anyone? Well, how about if we how about if I turn the volume up a little bit more and, and kind of with Margot's sort of postings on the thing? So what if it's a family of five and and the family's really stuck and now we don't have two people in relation, intimate relationship with each other. Now we have five people with an intimate relationship with each other. And, and where does MI fit with that? And I haven't done family therapy to any degree since becoming knowledgeable and, and able to do motivational interviewing but wow, that's a whole nother kettle of fish. Yeah, I'd, ho I'd hope that would be a part of this conversation, but it certainly seems like a conversation you could you could have in the future. Yeah. Um, I know thinking about groups, the family systems work and some of the internal family systems uh, ideas have been helpful. Um, just to briefly go back to Kendall and then I'll, I'll let it go. Um, 
So one of the ego things I had to learn, like processing through that situation I described is, you know, um, I have a bias that remaining in my group would be the best <laughs> pathway <laughs> for somebody who's in it. But she may have gotten everything she needed and moved on. I had to guess, you know, <laughs> what happened and, you know, tell myself some stories to be okay with it. Uh, but, but, you know, there's that. Um, you know, I think about, am I, this is a little bit of a, an aside from that, but as not necessarily teaching people skills to climb the mountain better or, you know, giving them gas or steam to kind of power forward as much as just helping people find um, a way that change feels more natural to them. And they're not fighting, you know, things inside themselves and they're not fighting ideas that put in them head, their head that might be good for other people, but don't really fit for them. Um, and so like with this woman, you know, her leaving the group may have been her, you know, moment of moving into sun and rainbows. Of course it was. My, my, my way of capturing that for myself, Chris, is that like, ultimately we're, we're, we're responsible for, for the integrity of the process. We don't get to control its outcome. Mm -hmm. well and that's true, whether it's individual, couples, group, any kind of treatment, right? That's mm -hmm. kind of the difference of, you know, talking with, talking with you, Tyrell, versus talking with the guy who's buying the bar at the pub. <laughs> about my that's, that's, that's probably true he's probably more invested in the outcome well I, so I, I think there's there's something that happens in couples work it happens in individual work but it's part of what makes any um counseling exchange so different and i think motivational interviewing captures this really beautifully in ordinary discourse we assume that that when people speak in statements, they're going to tell us about them. And if they want to know about us, then they'll ask questions. But most people just casually in ordinary conversations don't, when they speak in statements, they move the center of gravity in the conversation towards themselves. And I, I think one of the really remarkable things about motivational interviewing is 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 that in the process of learning to do it you learn to speak in statements to make assertions without shifting the center of gravity towards yourself and that that i think is powerful for individuals and when you do it for a group you you become the person potentially who verbalizes what these two people are for each other or what this group holds in common, you, you become the holder of that, that consensus and cohesion. I love what you're saying, Tyrell. And I was also distracted by Logan coming into the room. I'm sorry to do that. Um, I love you. In the real life, it's my turn to go be parent now. So I will probably have oh. to go myself. Um, I should probably go as well. All right, we we can we can wind it up here. That that's fine. I mean, we've almost gone two hours, and and I know I'm I know speaking for Steve and Kendall, I'm really and Ange are really grateful for the time that you gave us. Um, yeah, you too, Logan. You too, buddy. Um, this was really fun. I'm glad that this we got great. to do this together, Tyrell and Chris and you guys. Thanks for inviting us.
You're more than welcome. Happy Ken. to do it. Okay. Well, maybe there'll be another time. Um, good evening or good morning, whatever time it is where you are in the world. Okay. Any closing thoughts before we before we disconnect from anybody? Just just thank you for opening up this space. Um, I think there are many other conversations to have. The issue of culture got raised a few times, and I, I'm aware that it's so interrelated with any time we're trying to bring groups of people together. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Rebe Poobah, a yee-haw bookum.